Hey everybody, it's Big E, and it's episode two of our podcast for Virginia law enforcement officers here in Virginia. Thanks for checking out my new podcast. Uh, like I said last time, I've never done this before. I've never done a podcast for Virginia police and sheriffs, but I'm hoping to make it a regular thing. Uh, this is a podcast for law enforcement officers who want to do it right, who strive every day to do it better, and to find new ways to strengthen and serve their communities. Um, over and over again throughout my career, I have seen that Virginia's police and sheriffs want to be better. They want to improve. You guys want to learn. You want to be the best you can be. And, you know, so many times people have asked me, I wish there was a way that I could stay up on the law, that I could learn. And, you know, for myself, I listen to podcasts all the time. I don't know why it took me till now to realize, hey, maybe this is a good tool for law enforcement, right? You're stuck in your car. Uh, you're stuck walking around a lot. You don't have the opportunity necessarily to be looking down and reading something. Your eyes have to be on something. doesn't mean you can't listen. You can't learn. And so uh, this is a, a tool to see if you like it. Hopefully you like it. Maybe it's useful. I don't know. We'll see. Um, we'll see where it goes. Let me know if you have ideas for what you'd rather do, if this is good or you didn't like this part or you did like this part. I'll try to make it better. We're going to talk about a lot of topics in this podcast. We're going to talk about constitutional law. We're going to talk about searches and seizures and search warrants and electronic evidence and Miranda and all kinds of stuff. But um, last episode, I wanted to talk about something that I think is on everyone's mind. That's use of force and use of force law. And we talked a lot about federal law and 1983 and qualified immunity last time. And today we're going to talk about use of force under Virginia law and the way that Virginia courts look at it. Um, and then we're going to talk some more about, we're going to dive deeper into uses of force. Uh, we're going to talk about Graham versus Connor in a future episode. And we're talking about Tennessee versus Garner and all that kind of stuff. Uh, we'll talk about supervisory liability. We'll talk about all kinds of different things. But that's down the road. That's another issue. This is, right now, we're just talking about fundamentals, real basics here. And that's the goal for today. So um, we're talking today, last time, just to recap, we talked about federal law. How is it that a person gets into federal court and brings a federal lawsuit against a local Virginia, local law enforcement officer, a police officer, a sheriff? Um, how does that work, right? Well, this week we're going to talk about, well, maybe somebody wants to go to Virginia court. They want to go to state court. How does that work? How do you end up in state court in a lawsuit against a Virginia law enforcement officer? And as it turns out, you know, in Virginia, we don't have a excessive force statute. We don't have an excessive force claim that you can bring against a law enforcement officer. We in Virginia are still basically a common law state. And I want to explain what that means before we go on, because it's really important as you go through and you understand why the, the law is the way it is, it's important to understand what it means uh, that we in Virginia are a common law state. In fact, in Virginia, it's one of the first code sections that we have in Virginia that uh, that says the common law as it existed under the King under King James of England at the time of the founding of the Commonwealth of Virginia is still in effect unless the General Assembly has made a change. Now, what the heck does that mean? Well, what it means is essentially that we took the law that existed frozen in amber at the time that the English colonists came over from England and founded Virginia. We took that and we made that our law. And that's still our law, except where the General Assembly has gone in and made changes. So, if, for example, you know, if you've ever sat down and said, okay, well, let me look up what larceny is in the Virginia Code. You look it up and you look under 1895 and 18.96, and you see there's no definition for larceny. It's, it's not in there. There's no definition for stealing. Um, if you look up, uh, you know, robbery or you look up, um, you know, offenses like burglary and so on. So there's statutory burglary. And, but that word statutory burglary exists because we created a statute for 
a certain kind of burglary. But statutory burglary is a statute about burglary that adds to, but doesn't replace the old English concept of burglary. And the old English concept of burglary was it was only a burglary if you broke into somebody's house, not their you know, business, and it was only burglary if it happened at night. Um, so, you know, and obviously, you know, the idea there being that the most dangerous thing that you can do is go into somebody's house at night, right? That's really that, you know, as opposed to going to their house during the day. So, um, so we have this common law in Virginia and the common law is where we get the idea of assault and battery, right? Look up 18.257. There's no definition for assault and battery in the code. Assault and battery comes from common law. It's an old concept. And so we use old words and these old concepts still apply in Virginia and still govern. And the common law is where we get um, our, our civil causes of action for injury against a person. So if you are suing somebody for injuring you, you're usually doing that under the common law. We don't have statutory statutes about injury in general. And we don't have them in Virginia either for law enforcement. We don't have excessive force statutes. We just have the common law. Because we have just the common law, what that means is that if a person is going to bring a lawsuit against a law enforcement officer in Virginia, they're going to have to bring the lawsuit under an old under a common law idea. If I don't like that the officer uh, arrested me unlawfully, right, I'm going to have to argue the officer battered me, right, that the per that the officer uh, put me in custody, took my liberty away, they battered me, they hurt, you know, they hurt me in that way. Um, they, you could also, you could argue false imprisonment, right, under uh, under a common law theory. If I don't like that a law enforcement officer um, smashed into my car during a high-speed pursuit, I'm going to have to argue that he was negligent, right? He didn't intentionally hurt me, right? But he hurt me due to negligence, and so I'm going to bring a negligence claim against somebody. And so if we're thinking about, if we're looking at a claim of unlawful use of force in Virginia, right? This officer pushed me, shoved me on the ground, and I hit my head. Um, that is going to be a battery claim. Well, you know the law about battery, right? You've known it because you have to know it and you enforce it all the time, right? The idea of battery is that a battery is an unlawful touching uh, in a rude, angry, or vengeful manner that is done without legal justification. And so immediately you should hear then in that phrase, in that definition, the concept of a legal justification is a defense to battery. Law enforcement officers touch people against their will, right? Touch people without the people's consent. Um, often if they're arresting the person or taking them into custody or detention during an investigative detention, that's going to be a legal just. There's going to have to be a legal justification for that. Where does that legal justification come from? Well, it comes from either probable cause or reasonable position. It comes from the Fourth Amendment, right? So notice already, just before we go on, that once again, the law that you already know, the Fourth Amendment, the law that you already know, assault and battery, that law which you learned for criminal investigations is going to apply equally in civil cases. There isn't a different Fourth Amendment for civil cases than there is for, 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 for um, criminal cases. And there isn't a different concept of battery in civil cases than there is for uh, criminal cases, not for your purposes at least. So again, your, uh, and, and we talk about force, reasonable force incident to arrest is going to be a legal justification. I was using reasonable lawful force based upon the totality of the circumstances, right? Again, these concepts are going to be, uh, are going to keep showing up here. Um, another way that law enforcement can be sued is for negligence. And uh, I'm going to skip over the negligence concept here for a minute because um, negligence 
is a there's a different idea for negligence here. It's not an intentional act; it's an unintentional act, and so the standards for how you're going to be found liable for negligence is going to be a little bit different. So I'm going to skip that for a second, though, and focus on this idea um, that sort of the common law remedies are what can be used against law enforcement officers, right? Um, it would be easy to say, well, then the difference between going to state court and going to federal court is, do I want to sue for deprivation of my civil right under the Fourth Amendment, or do I want to simply sue for a, a, a deprivation of my, you know, or, or a common law tort, we call them, tort is an injury, uh, assault and battery, or um, false, you know, take, uh, false imprisonment, or something like that. But it's important also to know that, you know, when we talk about these legal concepts and legal theories, that's not often the main reason why people go to either state court or federal court. See, the process in Virginia for, federal, for court and the process in federal court is very different. Uh, in federal court, in, there are procedures in place that allow a person to allow a defendant to get a case dismissed long before it ever goes to trial. And there are many different stages in the proceeding where a defendant can step in and ask for a case to be dismissed based upon the information that is in the uh, written pleadings and the written lawsuits, and also that is collected during discovery, during depositions, during collection of documents. Um, there are things called interrogatories. You write questions to each other. You have to answer the question in writing, requests for admissions, and so on. So in federal court, uh, a lot of cases end up being resolved or finished without ever having a trial because they have these pretrial motions where the cases can be dismissed. And in federal court, that process is an important part of that process. An important reason why you might go to federal court is because you like to have uh, that process available to you. In state court in Virginia, on the other hand, there's really much more of a bias towards or a drive towards having an actual trial. It is, courts are discouraged from dismissing cases before trial. It is very hard to get a case dismissed on summary judgment, it's called, when uh, you're basically asking the court, dismiss this case without any trial whatsoever. Uh, much, much more difficult to do so to get a case dismissed before trial in state court than in federal court. And in addition to that, the discovery process and the trial process often takes a lot longer. In federal court in the Eastern District, you know, if you file a lawsuit, that case might go to trial very quickly. It might go to trial in a matter of months or a year or something like that. Um, in state court, you can file a lawsuit. That lawsuit can last for literally for years, can last for three, four, you know, five years. Um, and some courts are very strict about that, about not letting that happen. But a lot of courts aren't strict about it. And so if you are trying, if you don't want your case to go to trial for a long time for some reason, or you want to have a long process of discovery, you're afraid that the case is going to get dismissed before it goes to trial, you really want to make sure that you go see a jury, you might file your case in state court. Another thing to keep in mind, too, is who is your jury going to be in your, uh, in your case? So in a state court, if I have a law enforcement officer in uh, the town of Springfield, the city of Springfield, let's say. So it's a city, it's an independent city, it's Springfield, um, and it's in Virginia. Just imagine there's an independent city called, that's called Springfield. Um, then if an officer hurts me in Springfield, I'm going to bring my lawsuit against that officer probably in Springfield. I might bring it, you know, in another place like where that officer resides. I might bring it in his county but or city, but I'm going to bring it in, in, in probably bring it in Springfield. And that means I get a Springfield jury. And that might be good for me. And it might be bad for me. 
um, if I'm if I go to federal court, then I go to the district where the Springfield is located. And so what that means is that if that's in the Eastern District of Virginia, then I get a lot more jurors brought in from a lot over the area. And so again, as a plaintiff, I'm going to have to make a decision like that. And these decisions, these tactical decisions, oftentimes drive what drives somebody into one court or another instead of uh, the just simply what's my legal theory. And you can you can argue, you can say to a to a court, you can also say, I want to have my federal 1983 action uh, uh, covered in state court, so I could bring that along with my claims in state court if I wanted to. I could try to bring my state court claims into federal court. I could sue under 1983, but also argue assault and battery, and also argue, um, you know, negligence under a state theory. And I could bring all those lawsuit those claims with me together to my federal court case as well. So it can get kind of complicated. I don't want to give you the sense that it's all or nothing. It's just state court or it's just federal court. But, uh, but I hope that at least I'm giving you some sense of how this works. The other thing about state court and state claims is this is where you would bring potentially a negligence claim against the government and against a law enforcement officer. And I do want to take a second and sort of unpack how it would be that a person would bring a lawsuit against a law enforcement officer for negligence and what the standards are, because the answer is a little bit complicated. And so I want to make sure that uh, when you leave this podcast today, you understand what the standards are for bringing a lawsuit against a law enforcement officer for negligence in their duties uh, under the law of Virginia. And I'm going to bring this in, 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 a, in a lawsuit in Virginia. Now think for a moment about what that means, a lawsuit against negligence. So let's say you show up to do an FR300 on a crash, and it's just two individuals, one person um, merged improperly into the travel lane, and uh, you know the other person says, I was driving, I was, you know, it was bright as day, they should have seen me, they didn't see me, they pulled out in front of me, and so we caused this crash. So yeah, I rear-ended him, but it was his fault, so you got to figure out who's negligent in that situation, right? And so that case might go to trial and there might be an argument before a jury as to who was negligent here. Was it the person who pulled out in front of the other driver? Was the driver who rear-ended him? Um, who was negligent there, right? Who did not exercise the duty of care, a reasonable duty of care, the kind of care that we expect an average everyday person to engage in or to carry while they're driving their vehicle, right? That's, what we, that's the standard that we have in a negligence case. Now, as I said before, um, there's this concept of immunity that I want to throw out there. And in general, um, we brought with us from England the concept of the, the common law, right? And under the law of King James of England, the king created the legal system. He created the courts for people to be able to come in and address and resolve their disputes without bashing each other over the head, right? Here's a place where a, the king and the people who carried the king's authority could decide and uh, in, in, in resolve disputes between citizens in a peaceful way. One of the things about that system was that the king sort of declared, well, I created this. I created this to help you. You can't use against me. You cannot sue me in my own court. And what that concept was called was sovereign immunity. Um, it was inherently impossible, indeed in their eyes, logically impossible, to sue the government in the government's own court, right? The legal scholars thought this was just impossible, like it just could never happen. We've gradually moved away from that in Virginia, I mean, in Virginia, in the United States, um, but there's still this concept of sovereign immunity, that you cannot sue the government itself for anything uh, in a state court because the state has created the court and so how is it that you could go in 
and sue the sovereign in the sovereign's own court. This doesn't exist in the federal system because the federal system, you can't sue for anything unless there's a statute, right? So there has to be a statute that allows you to bring the lawsuit. And in federal court, we have 1983 to do that. In Virginia, we have the Virginia Tort Claims Act and other statutes that do allow you in limited circumstances to sue the government, to sue um, this, the Commonwealth of Virginia or to sue um, you know, the city of Springfield or the county of Springfield, right? You could sue uh, that government under certain circumstances. But again, an individual driver of an individual car, they're not the sovereign, they're not covered by the government, they can be sued if they don't exercise their duty of care. So what does that mean for police officers? Well, essentially what it means is this. If you're just driving around right now, like let's say right now you're just sort of driving around listening to my podcast because I don't know, that's the only podcast that you have access to for some reason. And if that's true, I'm very sorry. And um, you don't do anything special. You're just sort of on patrol, routine patrol. And while you're listening to the podcast, you uh, pull out into traffic and you don't pay all the attention that you should have. Um, you know, you've got the podcast turned up real loud and you're interested in something I said or mad about something I said or whatever. You don't notice that there's somebody coming in the travel lane. You've cut them off. They don't have time to stop. They slam the brakes. They hit you. Uh, you cause a crash. Well, you know, you're going to be liable for that. I mean, that's, it's negligence, right? It's, you didn't demonstrate the duty of care that all drivers do to owe to one another. And so, uh, you know, you are employed by the government, certainly. Uh, you're wearing a badge of authority. You're driving a government vehicle. But, you know, you're just driving a car. You're doing what every person does every day. You're doing it as part of your job, but you're going to be found to be liable. Now, that doesn't mean that the county or the city isn't going to pay for your damages, right? They've probably indemnified you. What that means is that they're covering you for your liability uh, that you might incur while you're out doing your job. Um, they might provide you with a lawyer to come to go to court with you to address the problem. It's a lawyer that their insurance company, if, if they've hired an insurance company, and a lot of people, a lot of localities have, um, the insurance company will hire this lawyer and go to court with you. They're protecting the, the, the county or the city's money, not your money, because it's their money on the line. So they might resolve the case uh, to protect the money. Um, but they're acting essentially as your lawyer. Um, some counties and cities are self-insured, which means they just pay it out of their own pocket. Um, in which case they might have their own attorneys that work for them in the city or county attorney's office. So they might even hire a law firm out of their own pocket again to defend you. But one way or the other, right, this is a lawsuit against you. So if your um, uh, officer, if your officer Wiggum and officer Wiggum pulls out into the Springfield, you know, Springfield Main Street and causes this crash, it's going to be the lawsuit of person who got car got wrecked against officer Wiggum. And, uh, and that's about negligence, right? So that's pretty straightforward, and that shouldn't be a surprise to anybody. But that's not really where we worry about great deal of liability, right? I mean, we all know, hopefully, how to be good drivers. From time to time, society asks you to take enormous risks, risks to both your own safety and, indeed, the safety of other people right? Uh, and let's talk about driving, for example, as an instance of this, right? From time to time, society says, you know what, that sign says 25 miles per hour. And uh, nonetheless, I'm asking you in this situation to drive as fast as you possibly can uh, with due regard to safety, but really drive just as fast as you can um, without killing anybody or without really seriously hurting anybody to get to a particular location. Because at this location, there's something terrible going on that calls for that kind of fast response. 
there's a house on fire. There's someone trapped in the second floor of their house and their boyfriend is attacking with a knife and he's stabbing at the door and he says, I'm going to kill you. And, and the person screaming the phone, please come help me, come help me. You know, that kind of situation where, hey, you know what? Forget what the, um, forget what the, what the speed limit is. Get down that road and get to that house. So we ask you to take these enormous risks. We're telling you to take these enormous risks, to go help this other person because we make a decision that uh, we're going to take that risk to help protect that person's life, right? So we tell you to run code. And you might have your own regulations about how you do that. In that situation, then, it doesn't make sense for us to simply use a standard of negligence, right? Because you're doing something that's dangerous. And um, we're not supposed to do dangerous things, except you are in this situation. So if while you were doing that, if while you're flying down the road at 60 miles an hour instead of 25 miles an hour, and you're trying your best to protect, your, you know, to not hurt anybody else, but you need to get to this house because this woman's about to be killed, or this house is on fire or whatever, so you're driving as fast as you possibly can, um, you merge onto Main Street, and there's somebody, and you didn't see, you know, you, you looked and there wasn't anybody there, and you pulled out, but then there was somebody was there, and boom, they crash into you, and, uh, and now you've got this crash in your hands. How is the court going to judge that, right? They asked you to take this risk. You had a crash. How is the court going to judge your, your decision in that case? Well, in this instance, what they're going to do is they're going to say, we're only going to find you to be liable if you demonstrated gross negligence. And gross negligence is an utter lack of care that amounts to a total disregard for another person's safety. And we're going to do that because essentially at that point, you really are acting as the government. And we, for you know, hundreds of years, have said you can never sue the government. Um, but we've stepped back from that stance. Now you can sue the government, but we're only going to sue the government. We're not going to just entertain any lawsuit. You only get to recover money from the government or people who are acting on behalf of the government when the government uh, demonstrates a total lack of care, a total disregard for the, for the safety of another person. So if while you're responding to the call, you're like, oh, I want to get this episode of this podcast up because I think it would really be cool to listen to this podcast while I drive down here and I don't want to waste this time. And so you're trying to find the podcast, but it's really hard. So you go looking for your eyeglasses and they're under your seat. They fell. So you top your head down on your seat, but you're still driving 65 miles an hour. You're not looking at all. And you're clicking around your phone and you're looking under the seat and reaching. You're not looking and you pull out and you crash into this other car. Well, that demonstrates a complete lack of concern for another person's safety. You're going to be found to be liable for that. That's gross negligence, right? But not, uh, you know, not exactly doing things the way you were required to do in your EVOC class. That's what we're talking about, you know, really more along the negligence line. So that's how Virginia courts resolve these issues of uh, negligence and, um, and, and, and gross negligence um, in, uh, in these situations. So I mentioned assault and battery, I mentioned gross negligence, and then I also had mentioned false imprisonment, right? And so that's another Virginia cause of action that you can bring against somebody to recover damages. And it's the same false imprisonment uh, tort or uh, injury claim that you could bring, that a person could bring against anyone. They could bring it against, um, you know, Walmart store security. Walmart store security held me against my will. I had purchased this item. I paid for it. I had a receipt. They tackled me. They falsely imprisoned me. They assaulted and battered me. They tackled me. But then they, you know, handcuffed me to a chair in the loss prevention office and held me for 20 minutes while they tried to figure out if I really did uh, buy this item. That would be a claim of false imprisonment. 
right? Um, essentially, it's like false arrest. It's intentionally restricting a person's movement without legal right. So notice here again, in that phrase, you have this phrase without legal right. Well, if you have a legal right to imprison somebody, to take someone's liberty away, then you, uh, then you have a defense to false imprisonment. And so probable cause, right, would be a defense uh, to that. A really good defense to a false imprisonment claim, though, would be having a warrant, right? And so notice here already that having an arrest warrant is a really good way to defend against a claim of false imprisonment. Um, an example of this is the case of Lewis versus Kay. And this is a case that was brought in Prince William County where a police officer, a bunch of police officers arrested a guy on the claim that he had abducted a child. Um, spoiler alert, he didn't abduct a child. The child asked for a ride home. Lewis gave uh, his ride, this kid a ride home. But some crazy, somebody, somebody called in and said that he uh, had abducted the child. And so on called in, left him 911 um call saying, hey, I'm watching this person get abducted. And so the uh, the police find Mr. Lewis and they arrest him. He brings a lawsuit and uh, one of the people he tries to bring a lawsuit against is Officer K and argues that uh, this was false imprisonment. And the court looks at the in the case and they say, well, let's see what happened. Well, Officer K heard the 911 call. He brought the 911 call to the magistrate. He brought a, a tape of the 911 call. He brought the you know, DMV transcript, all the information to the magistrate. The magistrate issued a warrant and the police arrested Mr. Lewis. Um, and the court said in that case there that the arrest was based on a warrant. The warrant was valid on its face and therefore the false imprisonment claim would not continue. Um, interestingly, there was also a defamation claim in that case um, that the uh, people who claimed that he had abducted this child were defaming him. And that case, that claim did go forward. That got resolved separately. Um, but for our purposes here, notice that the existence of the arrest warrant was a, was a complete defense for the officer here. It was a plainly a valuable defense against the argument of false imprisonment. So when, you, when people tell you, oh, you should get a warrant, um, they're telling you you should get a warrant um, because of the uh, because it is such a powerful defense for you in a state claim of false arrest or false imprisonment um, under that under that tort in Virginia. And of course, again, if you had the arrest warrant, it would be commanded to take that person in custody. So it would be a defense for you um, against the assault and battery as well. And uh, and again, this is why you're often told. Um, you know, when all else fails, you should have a warrant. You should have a warrant in hand because that gives you that legal protection that you always need. So that's a little insight into Virginia law, Virginia torts that are brought against law enforcement officers. Um, we are, once again, uh, close to being 30 minutes, so apparently I can't keep my mouth shut. We talk too much, uh, but there you go. Um, I do hope that this has been useful for you. I want to tell you a little bit about where we're going to go from here, what my goal is, what I'm going to try to do next. Um, I'm going to talk. I'm going to talk some more about federal use of force law. Uh, the next episodes, I'm going to talk about Graham versus Connor. I'm going to talk about Tennessee versus Garner, which is the use of deadly force. And then I'm going to talk about criminal liability for law enforcement um, for uses of force under the law as well. And um, that's going to sort of round out our first few episodes. Again, my goal for this uh, for these podcasts, though, is to really talk a lot about criminal law, to talk about constitutional law, searches and seizures, talk about searches of phones and devices, talk about new cases from the various courts of appeals and so on, um, and, uh, and make this something that's really useful that helps you do your job better, because I know that's what you want to do. 
Um, so that's all from me. That's all from Big E. Stay safe and don't get captured.